0: When God Hides Himself. We have listed on our board to the left, or to your right, four of the more common reasons for spiritual depression. Four reasons where are sometimes involved when we feel depressed spiritually. Sometimes we say to ourselves that the Lord has withdrawn His favor from me. And this is a very great cause of depression. Other times... <clears throat> My life is no different than that of the world around me. Or a third statement that we hear at times, there is no specific purpose to my individual experiences. A fourth cause is I no longer respond emotionally to spiritual stimuli, to spiritual things. They don't bring the same glow that they used to bring. These are perhaps four of the greatest reasons that we at times feel alienated from God. Four of the things that put us in a position where we begin wondering, is the Lord still individually dealing with me? And what makes these spiritual causes of depression so much of a trial to us is that each of the four can be true. Each of the four can be a symptom that we are failing spiritually, and that we are digressing. This is a possible explanation for either of the four symptoms. But we're going to look at another possible reason, another possible thing that can produce the same four symptoms, recognizing that they are potentially a symptom that we are really in a bad spiritual state, there is another thing that these same symptoms can point to, and that is they can point to the experiences when God hides himself in our life. In Isaiah forty five fifteen, we have what we'd like to use as our theme text. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Saviour. He states as one of his attributes. That he is a God who will hide himself. The scope of our discussion, if time permits, in addition to looking at the four ways in which he hides himself, we want to look at seven reasons why he may hide himself in our life and then nine positive steps that we can take to find him again when he hides himself. The ways, again, we've listed here, they are one in a sense disapproval of our actions. When we feel that what we're doing does not have a relationship to God, we don't have the prayer life we once had, we don't have the closeness feeling because he has withdrawn his approval because we must have done something to displease him. That's the first way. The second way, when he so overrules matters, That we can't see any difference between our life and that of a person who has not given himself to the Lord. And we begin saying, well, if God is with me, he's with them. Or, conversely, if God is not with them, he is not with me. Because I can't distinguish any difference in my life and their life. Or a third way in which he hides himself is when our experiences no longer have spiritual meaning. When we can't identify what the experiences are for and we get into a rut. When our experiences merely mean I am living. I know I'm living because I experience. But I can't identify this experience with me spiritually. And the fourth way is recognizing that most of us when we first grasped the truth had a tremendous outburst of emotion for it. We loved it, we were enthused about it, we talked about it, we were excited. When it came up we heard a discourse and our spine tingled. And all of a sudden we come to the place where that's no longer true. We go because we've done it so long that it's a habit and it keeps going. We do certain things and uh, expose ourselves to certain spiritual experiences and uh, we're sort of glad. It's sort of nice. But beyond that, there is no quickening of the heartbeat. These are, again, the four symptoms. Why? Well, it depends which of the four we're having as to why. Because there are different reasons for each of the four. So as we talk, we're going to refer to the ABCD over here as to the reasons for the experiences. Some reasons fit all four. Other reasons fit one or another or a combination of the four. The first reason that God may hide himself fits particularly reason A, experience A. And that is sometimes he will hide himself to awaken us to righteousness. That's one of the first reasons. And this is where it's always good to keep in mind, as a basic rule of God's dealings with not only His church, but God's dealings with anybody, are never punitive, but corrective. Let me state that in other words. God does not deal to punish. He does not deal to wreak vengeance. But he deals to correct a situation. He may, at times, withdraw his favor to awaken us to the fact that we have begun to slip. Not that we have slipped, but that we are near the point of slipping and that we need to reassert ourselves spiritually. And I think one of the best scriptural examples on this is in the book of Esther, in the fourth chapter. And if you recall, the situation leading you up to the incident we're going to read... Is that Esther had not only become queen of Persia, <laughs> I believe it was yes, it was Persia. Uh, she had not only become queen of the Persian Empire, but at the same time, the archenemy of her uncle Mordecai, a man named Haman, had become the chief consular in the empire and had put into motion a plan that would mean the destruction of every Jew throughout the Medo Persian Empire. Mordecai, as this particular scene in the fourth chapter, opens. Mordecai realizes this, and he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, he sits mourning. Esther's initial response, we'll go back to the fourth verse of Esther 4. When Esther's maids and chamberlains came and told her about Mordecai's mourning, then was the queen exceedingly grieved, but what does she do? She sends raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth, but he receives it not. Her first response was, well, stop mourning. Let's just get over it. Let's not face the realities of the problem that was there. So her first reaction was not a very good reaction. It was a reaction based upon not comprehending the true danger of the situation. But then Mordecai wakens her to the danger by mentioning one thing specifically. And that is, this is not a danger remote to someone else. Your very life is at stake. You won't escape. You too are Jewish. And you are in just the same danger that I'm in and that all the rest are in. But then Esther realizes the alienation that she has already experienced from the king. The same point. The king had hit himself. And this is noticed in verse 11 as she reacts to the point that Mordecai gives her. Esther is speaking unto Hatak and gives him the commandment to Mordecai. All the king's servant and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king for these thirty days. Notice, she realizes that she has become estranged from the king. And she says, I am not free to go to him. If I go to him unbidden, I'm afraid that my life will be at stake even earlier because I have been so presumptuous to come to him. The same spiritual feeling that we have when we get into this class A. When we have that experience, we don't feel free to go to God. We feel, I am not bidden to come to him anymore. He has not communicated with me for these past 30 days. He has hid himself from me. And we don't feel we can go and And plead the cause. And this is what Mordecai is bringing out to Esther. The reason. He's saying, remember, your life is at stake. You think you may die if you go to the king. I know you will die if you don't. It was not a case of thinking, but it was a case of the positive fact that she would die if she didn't. And so spiritually, he may hide himself. God may hide himself from us to break us up to that one fact that if we don't continually communicate we will die there is a greater than Haman out there looking for us there is a greater than Haman who would attack us at all times if we do not maintain a closeness to the Lord and so this experience is to bring us back to the place where we will come to him and we will pour out our plates but in doing it we face that one big emotional problem We face the problem, but I can't. I have gotten out of the habit. I don't have that feeling anymore. And that's when we have to awaken to the righteousness that says, even though I don't feel comfortable in doing it, if I don't do it, the result is certainly disastrous. If I do do it, there is the one and the only potential of overcoming in this. And as we come to the remedies, we'll find that the first remedy is the remedy suggested by the first cause. And that's prayer. That prayer is the beginning of the remedies, even though it's the very hardest of the remedies to apply when we feel estranged from the Lord individually. The first point that Esther had reminds us very much of a certain class in the Bible. a class mentioned in the prophecy in the eighth chapter of Jeremiah. A class that ends up saying the harvest has ended, the summer has passed, and we are not saved. That class that speaks those words in Jeremiah 8:20, in Jeremiah 8:11 said that the reason for their punishment is because they said they healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. The very thing that Esther was trying to do, she was telling Mordecai, "Oh, your problem is you need new clothes." And he said, "That's saying peace, peace. That's healing it slightly. Uh, that's not the problem. That's the symptom." The problem was that she needed to approach the king on behalf of Israel. The same lesson is in the saying that I'm sure we've all heard, that uh, curing a headache, or aspirins do not cure headaches. That's, that's the, the saying. That all aspirins do is remove a symptom. But the symptom is to tell us that something is wrong internally. And so if we just remove the symptom, uh, then we are not solving the problem. And so the alienation that we sometimes feel is to awaken us to the deeper problems that lie there. To bring us to the Lord, not to solve the alienation, but to solve the deeper problems, to find out what it is that does not keep us awake. The second reason, and this reason particularly applies to point B and C, to teach us faith, trust, and reliance. That's a nice cliché. But sometimes the only way the Lord can teach us those three things, essential things, is by letting us feel that our life isn't any different than anybody else's or by bringing us to a place where we can't see any purpose to our experience. He said that's when you need to trust because you can't trace. And I think this is brought out most beautifully in the 23rd chapter of Job. We're going to spend a little time here because... 23rd chapter of Job so well pinpoints this particular problem and its remedy. It does both. First, we're going to note the problem. Verses 3 to 5, verses 8, 9, and 15. We're going to read those as one unit. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Verses 8 and 9. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Backward, I can't perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I can't behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. Verse 15. Therefore, am I troubled at his presence, when I consider, I am afraid of him. This is one of the saddest of all the scriptures in the Bible. Here is Job looking for God. And he looks everywhere. He looked on the left, on the right, in front, and in back. Some translations put it he looked in the east, in the west, in the north, in the south. He looked all over and he said, I just can't find him in my experiences. These experiences are, are over my head. And as a result, Job was beginning to sink in the problems that he had. And it doesn't until ten chapters later when Elihu begins speaking that he starts swimming upward again. And gets over this experience. But it finally got to the place, just the routine of it, and it was a routine of trouble in his case, that he began saying, I can't find God. I have looked every place for him. But now we want to go and we want to look at the verses in between, the ones we read. We read certain verses, but the ones in between fill in the answer. In verses 3 to 5, he wanted to find God so that he could plead his case before God. Now, I want to look at verses 6 and 7. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. Now, part of the reason we have problems maybe on this particular verse is we think verse 7 is a very poor translation. But to come to the translation, let's look at verse 6. When Job says, I wish I could find him so I could plead with him, He realizes that if he could find him, that he would find a merciful God. He says, if I did find him, would he being so strong plead against me being so weak? No, just the opposite. He would give me strength, but I can't find him. That's still the problem. I don't know how to to get to him. If I only could, then I would get the strength I need to overcome in this particular trial. Now verse 7, we're going to read from the Leeser translation. Leeser puts it this way. There would an upright one argue with him, and I should be allowed to escape forever by my judge. It isn't then would I, being righteous, argue. No, he said, if I could find him, one who is upright would argue with him. And who is the upright one? That's Jesus. This is the realization of how we find him when we lose him, is first we have to find our advocate. Because when we lose him, then is when we don't have that feeling of approach to God. And we feel more than ever, if only someone spoke his language. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And he said, if he would argue for me, if I could just enlist the upright one in my side, then he would deliver me from this judgment forever. Then I would be over this particular experience. It is finding the upright one in our lives. But he goes on, but I can't. I went forward, backward, left and right, and he still wasn't there. So now, verses 11 and 12. I'm sorry, verse 10 comes after 8 and 9, doesn't it? But he knoweth the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That has to come at the base of it. That during these experiences when we can't find him is looking for that realization. But even though I can't find him, I know that he has found me. That even though I can't grasp this relationship, he is developing within us this trust that he knows the way that I take. That when he is finished with me, then I will come forth as gold. We have a saying in our house, it's a little plaque in our piano. It's a very good saying for this. And that is the saying, have patience. God is not finished with me yet. And this is the realization that as we enter this experience, we haven't yet come to the place of realizing sufficient finishing of this product to relate to him. But he is trying to develop in us, even though you can't relate to me, develop faith that I am relating to you, that I have taken charge of your life and will remote it. But this requires a part on our end. Because while we're doing this, while we're trying to exercise this faith, and but don't have it. While we are estranged from God, that is when we are greatest danger of drifting away from him entirely because we don't feel that pull to him. And that's why Job comes back in verses 11 and 12 and he shows what he must do in order to know this realization. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The point that I think he's bringing forth here are things that Job felt that he had done. But things which should be stimulus to us is things that we must do. Especially at these times when we don't see any difference between our life and anybody else's life. We don't really feel the Lord is dealing with us. Then we need to exercise faith. But he will bring me through. He will do it as good if We're going to put the ifs in now for ourselves. If our feet will hold to his steps, that's one. If his way we keep and do not decline, that's two. If we do not go back from the commandment of his lips, that's three. And the most important one, if we esteem the words of his mouth more than necessary food. It's at this point that he is telling us, your faith will be well placed if you do your part. I'm putting you through a place where you can't see me so that you will just look at your responsibilities trusting that if you do that, I will do what I promise to do and bring you closer to me. And he tells why he's so confident in verse 13. And again, we like Leeser better. We'll read it from King James and then we'll read Leeser. 13 and 14. But he is in one mind and who can turn him. What his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Lisa says it this way. But he is unchangeably one. Who can turn him? What his will desireth, even that he doeth. He will bring to completion what hath been destined for me. And like these, hath he many other things with him. Notice the point there. That he will bring to completion what he has destined for me. Each member of the church, each one of you and me, are being trained and fitted for a peculiar, different plot in the body. That requires a different treatment. I cannot be treated in exactly the same way as Brother Edmund or Sister Marie or Brother Stromberg. We each need specific experiences. And as we come into these experiences, because they are different, we don't see what the end result is. And so we say, the reason I'm not showing you that is I want you to have confidence that I know best what the end result should be. And so I'm going to withdraw your ability to see what this is. So you will learn that my hand will lead you safely through and develop it. This is the the confidence he wants us to develop. And then he, he softens it by saying, and as he has this in store, this experience of hiding his face, so has he many other things in store. That's the end of that verse. Like these, has he many other things with him? The hiding of God's face is only one tool in his toolbox. He has other tools. He has tools of throwing his arms around you and showing at other times I really do like what you're doing. He has tools of giving you an experience that will direct you just when you need that direction. But he says, I got this tool too and I need this tool because without this you can't really realize it. When we opened this meeting we sang those words I'd rather walk in the dark with God than go alone in the light. Would we rather, really? That's what he's testing us. Are you willing to walk in the dark with me? When you can't see the next step, would you rather walk by faith than walk by sight? That's what we think. But that's a hard thing to sing because it means I would rather really not know what's going to be there, just see that step and then that step and not even know where it's leading, but realizing that there's one who has directed the path and that it will lead to the promised goal. One more thing before passing this experience as we want to notice Job's attitude while he complains. This, is, I think, is very important to grasp his inability to see God. His attitude is given back in verse 2. And again, we have a, a poor translation. Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. This word bitter, translated bitter in this verse, is the same word used in Deuteronomy 31 and 27. We like to read that just to get the meaning of the word. Not so much for the context there. We want to notice what this word really means. For I know thy rebellion. That's the same word that's translated bitter. Rebellion. I know thy rebellion, thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you, this day you have been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? Now let's go back to Job. Job 23.2 Even today is my complaint rebellious. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I could find him and I would argue with him. That's the rebellion that he's talking about. He says, I want to come to him and I want to argue my case because it just isn't fair him hiding himself from me. That attitude is the attitude he's trying to correct. He's trying to bring us into a complacent attitude of the realization that Job does have in verse 10. But he does know the way that I take. And however I can't see it, when I'm finished... I will come through as gold if I leave myself in his hands. The third reason why God hides his face, and it applies to every one of the experiences, all four of them. To test the depth of our consecration. To test the sincerity of when we say, Lord, whatever your will is, I'll do it. That was so easy to say at that particular point in our life. It wasn't really easy. We struggled because we knew certain things we had to give up, but they were simple things. And we were able to, after a while, say, well, really, they don't matter. But now, when he puts the real test to us, are you willing to take every experience? Are you willing to take a course that you are convinced is right by my word, even though once you begin taking it, you no longer can identify it with me? You become confused and say, how does this identify? This was the hardest experience that he gave his own son. And it wasn't us only. Remember in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, when he hangs on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt the same thing. He felt God's face hidden from him. And he noticed the depth to which he felt it. That here was the one individual who not only was perfect, but who had had a prior relationship to God, who knew him Intimately. The one person who throughout his life never addressed God in any other way than my father. Every single place, it's my father. He recognizes that relationship. All of a sudden, he can't even say my father. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? He's alienated to the standpoint he can't even call God his father. To test the very depth of that consecration, would he take that extreme alienation? In Jesus' case, it was very temporary. It had to be. His life was very temporary. It was only a few more hours on the cross. And so at the very end, God's favor was restored and his last words were, My Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He's able to again call him Father at his dying breath. But he had that experience to test, Do you really mean it? That you'll take every experience, even the experience of my turning my back turning away from you so you cannot see my face. The fourth reason, and this reason also applies to all four, but particularly to the last two, these two in particular, to teach us leadership and principles. Particularly, he may give us these two experiences for that object. These are experiences, particularly this one, particularly C, is an experience that any true Israelite would not have had, particularly. Because they did not need to wonder why their experiences were there. They were told exactly how to order their life. They were given a set of laws. And he said, now you follow this, you're going to get life. It's a formula. Do what I say and it will result in this. And they were told what his word meant to them. As a result, every experience could be related to one or another feature of the law. And they did. The really sincere ones, even the ones who became the traditionalists. That was one thing they didn't lose. That was the purpose of this big volumes of Talmud, Talmudic writings that are there, to try to relate every experience back to this. Experiences as to exactly how to eat. What foods to go together, what foods not to go together. How to make your clothes. What what cloth to put together, what not to put together. Every experience of life related to what God wanted or didn't want. But he comes along and he develops the church. And he says, now that too I'm not going to use. I'm not going to give you a law and tell you what to do and what not to do. I want you to think it out for yourselves. I'm going to give you the material to base your thoughts upon. That's in the Bible. But you have to determine what I would want you to do and what I don't want you to do. And that's harder, because no longer is it a simple case of uh, just reading what it is. Now it's a case of trying to learn how he operates. And as a result, he gives us the gospel, broad sketch outlines of his will. He gives us a book full of biographies, very helpful. Biographies of Old Testament characters, biographies of New Testament characters. So in studying those biographies, he doesn't tell us, though, which experiences they did were right and which were wrong. He just tells us they had these experiences. Now you think about those and decide which ones I would approve and which ones I would disapprove. And in most cases, he doesn't even give us the the answers which are the right and the wrong. But think on the principles. I have quoted so often, and I'm sure by now you're tired of hearing, my favorite citation from the reprints, but I'll give it again. God does not wish us to learn as children certain rules to be memorized. But as philosophers, the fixed principles to be reasoned on and applied. That is why he hides himself. So the better for us to see the principles. The better for us to analyze what would he have us do. He's not telling me. He's not showing me. He's saying, you figure it out for yourself. It's like a person training a new person on a job. There's only so long you can sit over their shoulder and say, now do it this way, this way, this way, this way. After a while you have to tell the the employee, this is the end result I want, do it the best way. And you let them figure out the best way of realizing uh, how to accomplish the job. And the Lord is telling us the same thing. This is what I want, I want a character like my own. You look at the principle and see how to get there. I'm not going to show you every step. I want you to develop leadership potential. Why? Because I'm training you. For what? To be kings. And a king must learn to think. A king must learn to actively know what the principles are so that he can be applied. He's training us to be teachers. In the world of teachers, there are two kinds of teachers. Good teachers and bad teachers. But there's one thing that distinguishes between the two. Probably many other things. But one primarily... A bad teacher teaches facts. That's right. He tells you what it is. A good teacher teaches you how to think. He teaches you how to arrive at the facts. If all we ever had was bad teachers, nobody could ever surpass their teacher because he didn't want to giving them information. But it's because there have been a number of good teachers who have taught how to think that the students have surpassed the teacher and been able to then teach even better how to think. The Lord is a good teacher. He is teaching how to think. And to do this, He may say, now, I want to accomplish this, but if you're just looking at me, you'll never do it. You'll see how I'm doing it. So I'm gonna hide. I'm gonna get away from you, and I want you to see if you can figure out what I'm trying to accomplish. But He's watching right through there. This is a one-way glass. And He can see what you're doing, and He says, no, no, I better show you again. And He steps out, and He instructs us again. Let his try it again. And he hides himself in our experiences to see if we will figure out what he is trying to teach. And it's in this line also that he teaches us that you must be governed in your life by principles and not by emotions. And that's why we come to point D. Point D can sometimes be an asset. The emotional response to truth is a great thing to have, but it can be out of balance in our lives. It can be that that's the only response we look for. And so he may withdraw the emotional response. Withdraw that which produces that emotional response to see if we're really looking for serving him out of the principles of righteousness. Or if we're only serving him because it produces this response. So his reason may be to teach us principles. A fifth reason applies to all four. To stimulate study. To stimulate us to go back to his word to find out why he's hidden his face. It's so obvious, but it's so necessary. It's one of God's ways of tapping us on the shoulder and said, Read 2 Timothy two fifteen again. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He didn't study it hard enough. Study it again. It doesn't say study. It says give diligence. Be energetic to show yourself approved. Now, that's going to involve study, but it's going to involve more than study of this. It's going to involve, particularly, study of this. Study thyself. Know thyself. Test thyself with the word. And sometimes to get us to do this, he said, all you're doing is you're studying for a response. I'm going to draw myself. So you begin studying yourself to find out why I withdraw myself, to turn us back to this. And this brings us directly to our sixth one, which is very closely related and applies to all four. By such study to give perspective to our experiences. And this, while applying to all four, is specifically in verse uh, number three And see, So we know why our experiences are four. When we think of study in the more traditional context, study as reading, thinking, applying, coming up with concepts... There are many rules we lay down for that kind of study. But probably one of the primary rules that we lay down in that kind of study is context. You don't study a verse of the Bible. You study a verse of the Bible as it relates to the verses before and the verses after. You study it in its overall context. It is just as important when we study the other book, the book of our lives, the book of our experiences, that we study that book in context. It's so easy to study our experiences out of context. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean by that taking an experience all by itself and saying, why did God permit that to happen? And we look at that one experience and we just totally befuddled. We can't figure out why that happened to me. That's because we don't take that experience and relate it To the context of our whole life. Our life is a context. It particularly became a context when we related to Christ. When we gave our life to him, we did more than give our life to him. We also at that same time enrolled in the school of Christ. And the school of Christ is the context of our Christian life. It is a schooling. Now a person who goes to school if he's going to get much out of that school, will have an objective when he goes to school. I'm talking now especially higher education, uh, your your college years. He's he's going there for a purpose, to be trained for something. If he is going there to take math courses, maybe he's studying to be a computer programmer, maybe an engineer student. But as he's going, he's relating what he's studying to the job that he's going to do afterwards. That makes that experience of school meaningful. It gives it a context so with us. We are being trained for a particular job. He's going to school to give us the things we need for that job. That job includes many functions, but let's incorporate them in just one. Mediator. I want you to be part of the mediator. Well, how can we relate our experiences to the context of being trained for a mediator? Well, maybe it's good for us to understand what makes a good mediator. We're going to quote a little bit here from the Vines Expository Dictionary on the word mediator. Because he gives one of the best definitions of the word. The mediator should himself possess the nature and attributes of him toward whom he acts, man. And should likewise participate in the nature of those for whom he acts, God. Only by being possessed of both deity and humanity can the mediator comprehend the claims of the one and the needs of the other? And in the final analysis, that's exactly the point. We'll have the nature of deity when we are faithful, if we are faithful. Jesus got the nature of deity when he became faithful. Only by having that could he understand what God really required, because then he shared the same requirements. But also, only by being with men and possessing their nature could he understand what they needed. He then could diagnose their problem. That's why we think in Job, the mediator is the interpreter. One who can diagnose these problems and take them across and solve them. And so with us. Our experiences are to give us a common identity with the world. In fact, that is why our life often is no different than the world around us. We're told it wouldn't be. First Corinthians 10.13 And we are switching quickly because our chairman is here to the 7th of the reasons why and that's all we'll cover in this talk but the seventh reason closely related to the perspective is to broaden our base of sympathy and that applies to all four but again particularly to the middle two 1 Corinthians 10 15 tells us what kind of experiences God gives us 10:13, I'm sorry there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man period just stop there the whole rest of the verse is beautiful But right here's what we want to get. There isn't any experience you've got that is different than man's. So you look at your life and say, my life is no different than those around me. And you say, therefore, God isn't with me. Just the opposite. Because your life is no different from others around you, God is with you. If we go down to point C, we look for the lesson to that experience. If we don't look for the lesson, then we are no different. The only difference is in how we apply ourselves in that lesson and the balance of the verse, the providential care that is there that he will show us the way to endure the experience and give us the strength to do it. But he says, I'm giving you the same experiences because that's what you're here for, to learn to be part of the mediator. So rather than using this as a point that God is not dealing with us, let's go and look for the specific experiences to show that it is the very proof that he is dealing with us. Notice it in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, you had two animals making one sin offering. But there was a distinction between those two animals one was a bullock, one was a goat. There was a distinction in what they signified one was Christ, one was the church. There was a distinction in what they did. Well, they both died, both had their blood applied on the mercy seat. But there was a distinction. The blood of the bullock was for Aaron and his house. The blood of the goat was for the whole family of Israel, whole tribe of Israel. Showing that Christ's part in the sin offering is peculiarly and particularly for the church. And the church's part in the sin offering is peculiarly and particularly for mankind. And you can substantiate this in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. That he was tempted in all points like as we are, not like as mankind is. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, that we have a sympathetic high priest who endured the same things that we endure. But the church will particularly have those experiences that mankind has, partly because they are of mankind. Uh, it's very natural experiences to give them, partly because that is required within the great body of experiences in the sin offering, to most effectually help mankind back in the kingdom. That someone has gone through a life no different, and one of the most, in fact, I will go so far to say the most common experience that mankind has, because it's universal, is that God is hiding his face from them. So, one of the most common experiences he must give us is that he hides his face from us. So that we, learning how to deal with that hidden face, learning the lessons from that hidden face, can learn how to again find it, and that's part two that we didn't get to, so that we can help mankind employ part two and find God's face again in their lives, so their lives can be more meaningful. Even as we, if we look for that face, we're finding it more meaningful in our experiences. The Lord and his blessing